Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Psalm 69. The Word of God to the chief musician set to the lilies, a Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. We might better translate that. They've come up to my soul. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because the ill for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me. And out of the deep waters, let not the flood water overflow me. Nor let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see And make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written 
with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with the song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor, does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Thus far we read the word of God, Psalm 69, the word of Christ. This entire psalm will be my text this evening as I bring out some salient themes here that have to do with the Messiah. For this is a messianic psalm, as we call them, which speak directly of Jesus and which are quoted as being fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus. This is, in fact, speaking of Jesus not only, but Jesus speaking of himself in this psalm. That's the glories of the psalms. They're, they're sung, first of all, by the principal singer in, in Israel. They are moved, or these psalms are written, and the human author is David. We have no reason to doubt that it's not, perhaps in one of the throes of his despair, as he was being pursued by Saul or maybe some other enemies. But we would focus on the Christ here who is symbolized in King David. In fact, this psalm is quoted more than any other in the New Testament with regard to Jesus, any other Old Testament passage, in fact, but one, and that's Psalm 22. You think, for example, of the temple cleansing when it is brought up that this is fulfilled in John 2. Uh, it's the fulfillment of this psalm that there is this zeal of the house of the Lord that consumes him. We think, for example, of the reference to the enemies of the psalmist giving gall for food and for his thirst, giving vinegar to drink. Well, of course, that's realized in the Gospels in Jesus' own crucifixion. So this is about Jesus, and this is Jesus speaking about himself, and he would teach us of something of his gospel. In fact, we want to consider the main theme of this psalm, and of all of Scripture even. We're going to be really broad here, and we're going to be speaking of something that's important for us to remember with regard to this whole book called the Bible, and that is that it's all about the sufferings and the glories of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of this psalm, and it's the theme also of the entire scriptures. In fact, if you're going to teach somebody to read your Bible correctly, you say, look for Christ, and then look for his sufferings and glories, and you'll not be far from the kingdom. We have, in fact, a, uh, an exegesis or explanation of that thesis of mine, which is true, 
1 Peter 1 verse 10 tells us that the salvation that was prophesied by the prophets was looked into by them and the grace that would come in the New Testament was looked into by them who searched their own writings, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. The Old Testament writers were speaking of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You want to have any kind of conversation that's meaningful, this indeed will be the beginning of your meaningful conversation. But I want us to consider three men to whom these sufferings and glories pertain. First of all, Jesus. The Bible speaks of Jesus' sufferings of glory and glory, but also the wicked. Oh, they have a kind of glory, but their end is a certain sufferings. It's so backwards for them. First for Christ, it's suffering, and then glory. For the wicked, it's a glory, a kind of glory, a glory in their shame, and then a suffering to follow. But then there's this sufferings and glories of those righteous people, of you and of me and of the church of Christ that is made members of Christ, symbolized in the Lord's Supper of which we shall partake gladly. And also, this is what we hear every Lord's Day, Jesus Christ, who draws us to himself in bringing us to God and makes us participate in his death, not atoning, but in part of the sufferings that come from this, and in his resurrection. May God be praised as we consider this word of the sufferings and the glories. First of Jesus Christ, first of all. The sufferings of Christ are brought out here, again, as is manifest in the uh, several quotes in the New Testament that this psalm is realized in Jesus. We have here uh, uh, a, a text here that forms the basis for what we call in dogmatics the humiliation and the glorification of Jesus Christ. His coming down, children, that's the humiliation of Jesus, and his going up, that's the exaltation of Jesus. Those are two states uh, into which he voluntarily goes and into the latter which he is taken into by and as a reward from the Father for his atonement. But here we have and we meet front and center, it almost smacks us in the face of the stark reality of the suffering of Christ. The real man, Jesus Christ, really suffered. And his enemies are described here as hating him without a cause, verse 4, and being more than the hairs of his head in number, and also as being mighty strong, those who would destroy him. These are ones who make it so painful for him, and they are the ones who have nothing to do with Jesus except despise him, and they would ridicule him and mock him. They reproach him. They hold him in scorn. And this we know was true in the life of Jesus. All life long he suffered the reproach of men. Even says in this text, alluding to Jesus not being received even in his own house, and among the Jews, 
that he was a stranger to his brothers, verse 8, and an alien to his mother's children. Again, that would be his brothers and his sisters, um, uh, uh, the sisters and brothers of Jesus. And it's all this suffering so real and so very real also because there's this suffering that we know Jesus took upon himself for, for our sake, the suffering of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the one who's the great sin bearer. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He's made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's this sweet exchange, as Luther would say, that all of our unrighteousness is put on him and all of his righteousness is imputed to our account and then imparted as he gives the Holy Ghost to us. So this is the sin bearer, the substitute one who's brought out in a, in a wonderful and an excellent way uh, in the word of God at Psalm 69. And there's this amazing verse, for example, in verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. He's talking to God his Father. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink, reference to his thirstiness on the cross. In fact, one way that we could summarize the extent of the suffering of Christ, the real suffering, is in the first verse where he calls out for salvation to God. And the reason is that the waters, he says, have come up to his soul, literally, his nefesh. Now here, if you want to have any concept of feelings, you go right to this word of God. There's this, uh, this, uh, these waters, these, these things that are going to drown him. This is a metaphor for all of his sufferings. They've come up not just to his neck, but into his soul. Now, there's a man who really feels something, and his feelings are not uh, de- deceiving him, as they often do us. We often feel something, but it's not the reality. But here, reality and feelings and sensitivity to what's going on here meet in the person of the Son of God incarnate in his humiliation. You want to know if God feels for you? Here it is in Jesus, the empathetic high priest. You want to know what his suffering is all about, and here it is, this waters coming up to his soul, into his soul, the wrath of God permeating his being. He knows nothing except that he's rejected of God even for our sake, and there's no comforter, not even God himself, for all he knows is that he is forsaken of God. This is what he says on the cross, and where there was light, There is now just darkness. In fact, when he speaks of himself being in deep mire and remarks that there's no standing here, and he brings out this metaphor once again in verse 14, deliver me out of the mire, let me not sink. He's speaking really of the fact that there's just nowhere for him to stand on earth, and there's no right standing with God even. We go into dogmatics here and we Read not into the text what's not there, but we draw from it the implications. There's just not a place for Jesus here on earth. 
There's not a place before God and there's not a place for, before men. That's why he's hanging on the cross, rejected of God and of men. There's no standing. And it's called mire. It's called a pit. It's called a hopeless predicament. This is what is described of Jesus Christ. And all because, well, there is no reason. I'll be frank with you, beloved. I know of no reason for this except the love of God. The love of God that God has for us and the love of God that's in the heart of Jesus. Because if you look at it, all of this suffering and this shame and this reproach and this misunderstanding, not only, but this alienation that he's feeling in his soul, in his bones, is exactly because he's a zealot for the house of God. John 2 is the fulfillment of this, but it's prophesied here in this word, Psalm 69, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. One way of his describing that he's bearing sin and sin's reproach for us. Well, there's a thousand ways that this uh, suffering of Jesus could be described. And we just want to remind ourselves that this is for our salvation, beloved. This is why there's a sacrament of that to, to add to the word of God. To be a symbolic sacramental word of God, I'll put it that way. So that we who need our faith worked by preaching, can have it enhanced in our pilgrimage from time to time as we come together and express our unity with God and one another, the sacred body, and say it's all about Jesus. And it's all because he suffered and died and he was broken and he was poured out that you might not be broken and you might not have to give your life for an atonement that would be impossible. Do you know that? This is the basic gospel, isn't it? The suffering of Messiah for you and for me. And it's something that's hard. I know that. And you should know that. This, there's, a, there's a stumbling block in this whole thing. That is... This is the stumbling block of the gospel, the hard thing. After all, it depicts here this man whom we know as God. I and my father are one, he says, and prays at the end of his life, just before he goes to the garden and cries out that his soul is suffering and, and beyond, beyond belief almost. He is one who says to his father and prays to the father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. He's speaking of his eternal existence with God the father before he came into this earth. Well, the stumbling block is simply that this is an impossible thing, that God would come down and truly be God and truly suffer. Try to explain that to an unbeliever, they'll find an objection at every time at every turn and at every word you say about this. Because this is exactly the way the wicked receive everything in the word of God with, with a sneer. 
It's impossible. How can God come down? Why would you believe a God who would come down and is not on his throne and who would be at the mercy of, of mere quizzlings and, and miscreants and thieves and robbers and a whole society of people, religious and pagan, that will have nothing to do with the word of God? Yeah. So he comes down and he suffers too. That's just beyond us. How can that be? There's something even, beloved, that we need to think of here, which has caused many to stumble. I'll just think of three things. The hardness for us to try to understand is two. When you think, for example, verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Here in the middle of this messianic psalm of which we'd all say, yes, that's about Jesus. This is Jesus. It's fulfilled in him. There is a prayer here of the psalmist who says, oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Now you think of that problem. Is Jesus here saying to God that he's foolish? that he has sins? Or is this just one verse that says, that we just skip over and say it's, it's not messianic? It's, it's not, this, not this part. Most of it is, but not, not this part. But beloved, I want you to think deep thoughts here and to think, first of all, of this fact that we know Jesus has no sin. And when he says, uh, my foolishness, the psalmist does, And when he speaks of his sins, my sins that are not hidden from God, if it were Jesus talking here, he would not be speaking of his sins personally. It may be, however, that he's so identified with us and our sins that just as much as he says, these are my people, he could say that. He says, these are my sins, not his personally, but the sins I take on myself. Now, that's deep. And we don't go too far and say this is Jesus sinning personally. You think, for example, though, of the fact that if, if it is Jesus who's praying here, and I do believe it is, he speaks to his God, who, whom he says, and he, he's confident that God knows his foolishness. Well, the Bible speaks of foolishness in different ways. One way is the foolishness of fools who have no fear of God in their heart. And the other is the foolishness of the gospel. Where Paul says in Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And so you have there a good foolishness, something that God gives to confound the wicked. So it could be in that sense that Jesus is speaking of what he does for the sake of the salvation of the people of God. He does what is considered foolishness by anyone and everybody, which would make him a laughingstock and a reproach, just in order to prove the point that God is above us and that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and that his cross is something that reveals just how glorious he is. So, think of that. 
course, not going so far to say these are Jesus' sins personally. Hollywood would make a heyday out of that, a great film about the sinning Jesus. And they do. Don't ever look at that stuff, beloved. It's blasphemy. But the Bible is there first to remind us of the ways of God and the depths that he would go to save you, sinner, and to save me. He will do something you never would have thought of. And justice and mercy somehow would meet for such fools as we are and such sinners as we are. That's one thing. And I trust this can get us to think and to talk with one another about these things and to marvel more at the wonderful way of God. But then there's this section of this psalm, verses 22 to 28. Maybe you, you thought of that as we were reading it. It's called an imprecatory prayer. We've met with some of that in our, in our sermons on the psalms. Imprecatory prayers are when the psalmist calls for curses and for disaster upon the wicked. Let their table become a snare before them. Maybe their altar, their worship, maybe their kitchen table. Let it become a snare before them. Their way of life, their frivolity, their hypocrisy, maybe at the altar and the table where they break bread in a religious way um, and, and they're making fun of religion. Well, he says, let that be a trap that their eyes be darkened, that they do not see, make their loins shake continually. And it goes on and on and on. And it's, it's one of the reasons people reject parts of the Bible here and there. This is so cruel. And besides, are you going to say that this is Jesus speaking here? A lot of commentators, they say, because of verse 5 and because of these verses, verses 23 to 28, this cannot be Jesus because Jesus, after all, says we are to bless those who curse us and we are to pray for their salvation. How could Jesus be said to be the one who's praying this? Just as much as the psalmist is praying, save me, O God, from the waters that have come up to my soul. I believe, beloved, it's understandable that Jesus would pray this. Just as much as he called curses and woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Just as much as he pronounced the wrath of God upon all who do not believe him. He is the righteous Savior, after all. And when he's speaking about himself, or for us, for example, his disciples, as being called not to curse our enemies, but to bless them and to pray for them who despitefully use us, he's simply saying, don't be those who take things personally as if we take it personally when someone's against me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wreak the vengeance of God in them by calling down curses upon them. No, what he's saying is, with regard to your enemies, have this attitude because they may be actually an elect of God or simply because you'll heap coals of fire upon their head in your love for them. Don't be those who have substituted yourself for God. At the same time, we are called to pray for the destruction of the wicked. We are. The Bible tells us this. And the Bible tells us this by leading the way in all of the Psalms. 
Can't just say, well, I'm going to pray part of that. That's the good part. It's the easy part. It's not in conflict with the Bible, but here is the point, and here is why Jesus Christ himself is the one who prays these prayers. He does everything for God. And do you know this, beloved? God does everything for God. That's why Jesus does everything for God. And not only heaven, but hell is for God. Not only salvation day, but judgment day is for God. And God did not make the world for you and for me to have a jolly old time here. He made it for himself. And especially this people, he says, have I formed for my praise. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God. And so the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the habitation of the just. Proverbs 3, verse 33. God calls down curses upon those and leaves them over into their iniquity, giving them up, adding iniquity to iniquity, as the Bible says here. Exactly because they would have that so. They want to sin, he says, I'll leave you there. And he positively damns those who continue to reject him. And Jesus, the Messiah, is on that God's behalf, the holy God's behalf. So those are some things to think about, and the wicked stumble over this, but may we not? But here's something that if you have the hardest time with, I'll be glad. It's this. Here's the depth of God here and the height of God. Here is... The wonder of grace, it's right here in Psalm 69, as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and as all of the Gospels and the New Testament doctrine reflecting upon the sufferings of Christ. It's, it's all here, and it's for you, dear people of God. It is for you. Believe this. This is for you. This is good for you. That's the psalmist here. He's not simply lost in the whole thing. He's strong in the whole thing, somehow. As for me... I'm the song of drunkards, a byword of those who sit in the gate. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord Jehovah. Verse 13. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. You see, here's a man, even the way and the truth and the life of God, who knows the truth of suffering and his, that it's not in vain, it is for God's glory in the salvation of a people, and this will redound to the glory of God forever. That's what he knows. And time and time again he remembers, and therefore he prays, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do not hide your face from your servant. Draw near to my soul. Hear me speedily. Deliver me because of my enemies. 
And on and on he goes. And God answers. And the psalmist here, even in the midst of his suffering, when I'm poor and sorrowful, he prays, let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. There's Jesus knowing the exaltation. Knowing the exaltation, the end. The light at the end of the tunnel of the wrath of God. The light that was no light while he lived, but in his death and then in his resurrection, he saw that light. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted to the right hand of God, and he sits now there, reigning over everything in power, all power and authority given to him in heaven and on earth, and reigning over the church in grace, and leading you with eagle's wings to the land of the promised Messiah and salvation. That's our God. And this speaks, therefore, of the sufferings and of the glories that follow for Jesus. But what about, and I quickly move on here, what about all of those ones who make the suffering of Jesus a terrible, painful reality Those who hate Christ, those who hate me without a cause, the psalmist says, are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. They're my enemies wrongfully. What about all of those? Well, that's a picture is this, these people, this multitude, this mighty group, just as at the cross, Romans, the Jews. It's a picture of this whole world which has, from the very beginning, in the fall, rejected the word. Anything that God has to say. It says, don't eat of this tree, believes the devil. Yea, as God said, you shall not eat of this tree, or you shall surely die, you shall not. And there is the beginning of the end of religion, true religion. And here's the culmination of it. At every point, Israel itself was prone to deny the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, rejecting the prophets, the servants of God, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, going after idols, hankering after Egypt, and then hankering after the gods of the Canaanites, and fighting among themselves, and as if there was no God of our peace and joy in Jesus Christ, uniting us all together, But he thinks greatly of himself, doesn't this man? And especially the religious men. Proud are the men who, the Bible says, are the builders of Babel, which afterwards is symbolized by Babylon. At the end of time is called Babylon the Great, the great whore. Mixture of church and state and all kinds of people together, and their togetherness is linked by this. They hate the word of God. They want a society that's wordless except for their own opinions and feelings. They change the times, the seasons, the genders. They change the mores of a traditionally uh, a moral, moral society and so on into anything goes. They despise the word, especially Jesus they say, crucify him. The heat is on, beloved. 
words of the dignitaries and words of the society of the haters of Jesus Christ are indeed mighty and many, and they're pressing us out of society, and they are formulating their hate crimes, trying to get one up on us and to get those ministers to shut up about things that are right and things that are wrong. Be ready. Be ready. Be careful, but continue to be bold and wise like the people of God you are. Be those, beloved, who understand that the wicked have an end. Psalm 73 is a remarkable psalm. We'll get to that, God willing, maybe in August, about somebody who was envying the wicked who seemed to have no, no problem in their life or in their death. Hey, it's fine. And they gain the most toys and they must win, right? And they have nothing. They, they don't have to go through surgeries, or maybe they do, but they just buckle up and they, they knuckle down and they do all the things to, to, to be strong in these times. And they make heroes out of themselves. And they're a bunch of philanthropists and everybody else, and, and they think they're great and they're, fa- they're falling, however, and their falling is sure. And the psalmist reminds us of that. He looked and he looked and he was, he was very... Ticked off, my God. Why are you causing these wicked people to, suffer, to prosper and me and the religious people to suffer? And then the psalmist says, oh, was I a fool or what? Was I ignorant or what? When I went to the house of God, the Bible opened and the wisdom of God revealed to me. Then I understood their way that God sets these people up as it were, in judgment upon them, gives them all these gifts that they desire without desiring the giver. And he sets them in slippery places, the psalmist says, so that they're on this kind of cliff and this precipice, or maybe as the analogy is used, they're floating down the Niagara in a boat, sipping tea, but the cataract is just down the river. And they don't even know it. Judgment is swift. God will be God. He will give them over to their hardness, uh, to their own sin, harden them. As the Bible says, Old and New Testament is the way of the righteous judgment of God. So these men who are up, they fall down. Many who are first shall be last, Jesus says. That's why he says it. Beware of those who will be first without God and without God being first. But now what about us? And I conclude with this. There's a people for whom Jesus prays and he prays confidently in his exaltation for their salvation. Verse 29, once again, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble, now he goes to his people. The humble shall see this. They shall see that I won over death. 
They shall see that I've been exalted and I was not left in the grave and sin is no more and death is dead. And they shall see and be glad. And they who seek not this world but God, their hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor, does not despise his prisoners. And there's the conclusion of the psalm. All the earth, heaven and earth should praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. And here's why God will save Zion. And God will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it, and also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it. That's you. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So are you one of those men, not the wicked, who live without Christ and who despise him? Maybe not outwardly, just ignore him, his claims and the joys and the sufferings for sinners? Or are you one who truly is like a poor person, like someone who's seeking God, who is seeking God and who is poor? Oh, blessed are you. But don't be surprised, beloved, if you start looking a lot like Jesus, maybe a little. That's the best I suppose we can do, but we are conformed to his image. So that Our joys are his and his joys are ours and we bear the reproach with him. We become uh, those who bear the image of Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of God and will be those who enter a church building perhaps and I don't know if you've ever been there to church buildings and you've gone to a worship service, maybe you were on vacation. Was a mistake, perhaps. You should have planned it out, but there it was. Christian ministry in the National Park, and the girl recites the Apostles' Creed and prays to the Great Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but the Indian Spirit of paganism that infiltrates everyone and exalts us to a plane that's above the earth and so on. Nonsense, paganism, pantheism. Well, at that time... My zeal for the house of the Lord was pricked, and we had a discussion, me and the woman church leader, and uh, went from there. But do we have that? A zeal for the house of God, a zeal for this house, a zeal for truth to be preached here, and to desire just the truth that be preached, the sufferings of Jesus and the glory that would follow the salvation of God in Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus, the revelation of God in Jesus, in these seemingly contradictory ways, in these impossible things. Do we want that preached here? And a man to be consumed here with that zeal for the glory of God in Christ, that others might be filled and burn up the place, as it were, At least burn up our own sinful desires that this place might be strong. Oh, beloved, that we might be strong. Whatever time waits us, whatever trial, whatever it is, whatever heartache, may we be strong in Jesus, not waver. May you be strong in this season of life that you're going through. I don't know what it is. Maybe I do something of it. 
Hey, be strong there in Jesus. And know that this suffering and glorious Messiah is on the throne. And you are to be like him, and you're not going to get all the things you like in this earth, and it's going to be a hardship sometimes for you to make decisions that are pleasing to God. But hear this poem with me, won't you, before we leave. Heavier the cross, the heartier prayer. The bruised herbs most fragrant are. If sky and wind were always fair, the sailor would not watch the star. And David's psalms had never been sung if grief his heart had never wrung. You know, God must love us very much to lead us in the way of suffering to his son. If that's what it takes, and it does, so be it. Though we find no comforters on this earth, you know what our only comfort in life and in death is, don't you? Belonging to Jesus, the one whose sufferings and glories are for you, and most importantly, for God. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us tonight the powerful way, the way of the gospel. We thank you that you work in our hearts to listen, and you work in the hearts of this congregation to listen intently, that not one word may drop to the ground and be unheard or rejected. May we take it to heart. We confess we've been listening too much to the world's words, maybe of its sufferings, maybe of its glories. This has got to stop, Lord. We know it. This grieves us. Draw us closer to you, we pray, this week, and make us more to be more useful to you and more those who glorify your Son in following him wherever he leads. Hear our prayers and bless us with glad and thankful hearts. Thanks for meeting with us on the Mount Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen.